Amen. Our first reading is from 1 Samuel 21. It's printed there for you in the bulletin. Or you, of course, are welcome to follow along in your own copy of uh, God's Word if you like. Reminder of the context. Uh, David is on the run uh, from Saul. Saul has just, in chapter 20, uh, not only made it clear that he intends to kill David, he has tried to kill his own son, Jonathan. Uh, remember the passage where Jonathan shoots the arrows in the field? That was 1 Samuel 20. And now David is uh, beginning to uh, seek aid in the wilderness, as it were. So 1 Samuel 21, Then came David to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David, and said unto him, Why art thou alone? No man with thee. David said unto Ahimelech the priest, The king hath commanded me a business, and hath said unto me, Let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send thee, and what I have commanded thee, and I have appointed my servants to such and such a place. And David turns. Now, therefore, Ahimelech, what is under thine hand? Give me five loaves of bread in mine hand. Or what there is present. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread under mine hand, but there is hallowed bread, if the young men have kept themselves at least from women. And David answered the priest and said unto him, Of a truth, women have been kept from us about these three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men, the men who were with David, are holy, and the bread is in a manner common, yea, though it were sanctified this day in the vessel. So the priest gave him hallowed bread, for there was no bread there but the show bread that was taken from before the Lord to put hot bread in the day when it was taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chiefest of the herdmen that belonged to Saul. And David said unto Ahimelech, is there not here under thine hand spear or sword? For I have neither brought my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. The priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom thou slewest in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If thou wilt take that, take it, for there is no other save that here. David said, There is none like that. Give it me. David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul, and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said unto him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing one to another of him in dances, saying, Saul hath slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? And David laid up these words in his heart, and was sore afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. He changed his behavior before them. And feigned himself mad in their hands. And he scrabbled on the doors of the gate and let his spittle fall down upon his beard. Then said Achish unto his servants, Lo, you see the man is mad. Wherefore then have ye brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that ye have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Amen. And then from the New Testament, Mark chapter 2. Uh, verse 23 to 28, it came to pass that he, that is Jesus, went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, the grain fields, and his disciples began as they went 
to pluck the ears of corn or ears of, of grain. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? And he said unto them, Have ye never read what David did when he had need and was and hungered, he and they that were with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat but for the priests, and gave also to them which were with him. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Everything that happens is a work of God's providence. Children, that's a, a fancy way of saying something like everything that happens is under the control of God. It is a carrying out of his decrees. If we could see all things from heaven or with the eyes of heaven, it would be much more apparent to us. But the truth is, that is only one angle of the picture. Another angle doesn't necessarily reveal a different picture, but it reveals a different perspective or a different description of one in the same image. Children, if you could imagine two people, each with a camera, taking a picture of the same image or the same scene, but one is standing directly in front and one is standing like over here somewhere. somewhere. You'd get two completely different pictures, but the same scene, right? The same image, as it were. An example of this in Christian theology is when we talk about the perseverance of the saints. God's elect do persevere from one angle. Westminster Confession of Faith 17.1 says that they whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, his elect, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere to the end and be eternally saved. So perseverance of the saints, that's from one angle, let's call it the earthly angle, but there's also a heavenly angle as well. When you look through that camera, the other camera, the heavenly one, you're not talking about perseverance. You're talking about preservation. Our God, who cannot change, has determined to save some, and they will be saved. They will persevere, yes. But from God's angle, we are preserved. As we persevere, God is preserving us. Same doctrine, same concept, but from different angles. Now, why do I introduce this to you? I believe this concept of multiple angles can help us draw out some lessons from 1 Samuel 21 with the help of Mark 2, verse 23 to 28. Because there is an earthly angle in the movements of 1 Samuel 21. But there's also a heavenly angle. There's what David is doing and there's what God is doing. And I don't mean to separate these angles and say two different things or two different images are really in mind. 
It's the same image, and they are truly one, but there are multiple angles. From David's angle, how would we summarize this passage? I think we could say that David is living or showing how to live on the run with wisdom. David is showing how to live on the run with wisdom. But from God's angle, God, though his servant is on the run, is providing for him. So David is on the run acting with wisdom, one angle. But another angle, God is providing for his servant who is on the run. One picture, two angles. To summarize, David's wisdom, God's provision. All right? So we're going to look at that over the three little scenes in the text. We've got David's wisdom and God's provision with the hallowed bread. We've got David's wisdom and God's provision with the sword of Goliath. And then we've got David's wisdom and God's provision before Achish, the king of Gath. Do y'all remember who is from Gath? Goliath. Goliath is from Gath. So what is this wisdom? This, David, this wisdom of David in the first scene. Remember, he's on the run from Saul. And it's hard to tell from Ahimelech's response whether he knew David was on the run, but we're told that Doeg is there, right? Doeg the Edomite in verse 7. It's possible that Doeg had told him, maybe. But it's also possible that he didn't know. If he did know, maybe his fear comes from what Saul might do if he helps David, right? Because he says he's afraid when David comes to him. Why are you by yourself? I know you're on the run from Saul. Or maybe if he doesn't know, he's afraid David might harm him or something else. It's hard to say for sure, but he's afraid. He doesn't know why David is there. And when he says he's alone, it doesn't exclude those people that David mentions later. It's not a contradiction. It just means to say that David appeared before Ahimelech and must have left his men in the field or something. David's wisdom, though, it's first shown in his appeal to the king's instruction. But if you pay close attention to this instruction of the king that David brings up, David doesn't use a name. He doesn't say, Saul told me this. And in a sense, what he's doing, he's deceiving Ahimelech, isn't he? By making him think that he'd been sent there by Saul, though he doesn't use Saul's name, and he's not allowed to say why he's there. But in another sense, what David says is also quite true of the king of heaven. His words are certainly, and they can be understood in a way to view what God by his spirit was leading David to do, to lead him on this mission that he couldn't really talk about, that he had to keep secret in some way lest he be exposed and caught by Saul. Now maybe you noticed as we were reading Mark that it says Abiathar. And in 1 Samuel it says uh, Ahimelech. Is this a contradiction? Does our Bible have an error in it? Well, first of all, let me tell you, never let that thought enter your mind. There are no errors, not even close, in Scripture. If you detect an error, you are in error and need to conform 
and study it more closely and just have faith that God preserves his word. But what is, we can make sense of this. Um, in 1 Samuel twenty two twenty, it says, One of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And most of the, the commentators, the ones that you need to be paying attention to, uh, say something to the effect that in the mind of the people, this scene came to be attributed and known more with reference to Abiathar than it did Ahimelech. And just as you know, when you say that, uh, you know, back in the day of so-and-so, it doesn't mean that no one else was there, right? But Abiathar was a son of Ahimelech, who was the priest, so he was there in some way, but he escapes this uh, thing that we'll cover next Lord's Day, uh, Lord willing, this slaughtering of the priest that comes about. But Abiathar remains, and he becomes the example that Jesus chooses to use. It's just as much in the days of Abiathar as it is in the days of Ahimelech, is the point. And it's just what Jesus chose to apply to it. Now back to David. David is applying a supreme wisdom here to get to Ahimelech so that he could have a meal. Though this meal came from what is called the showbread. This is mentioned in Exodus 25, 30. It was to always sit on the table before the presence of the Lord. It was a bread that was only for the priest to handle, as Jesus said in Mark chapter 2. In the context of 1 Samuel 21, just kind of based on some of the things that David says, and he seems to be hinting at there's a change of the bread from what was on there the week before to the week coming, that this is the Sabbath in the Old Testament. This would have been Saturday. David would have been going knowing that the bread was being shifted out, right? that the old bread was being removed and the new bread was being put in place. And David's wisdom is playing on this. He's understanding the situation. He is not taking advantage of the king or of the priest, but using wisdom to work out the situation so he could have some food. If you want to see uh, more about this, you could read uh, Leviticus 24. There's a possibility as well, because there's different takes on what's really going on here. Why Why they ask about them being pure. Could they have just given them the bread because it was an extenuating circumstance? But there's a possibility based on David's response. Because when Ahimelech asked the question about them being uh, with women, it was because when you go to war, when you go before the Lord and in the work of a priest, you were not to have been in, in close contact, I'll say, with women. Right? It, was, it was forbidden. You can see this in Joshua when they prepare for battle and such as that. Uh, so David doesn't say that they are clean. He says that they are holy, which is a totally different word. And some would draw attention to this and say that it's possible that what David is saying is not just that they are ceremonially clean, but they are holy and consecrated for this special mission, much like taking something like a Nazarite vow, and it would have given them special permission to serve as a priest for a time. Whatever the case, it's it's hard to say for sure this becomes an example for the Lord Jesus in permitting his own disciples to feed themselves the way they did in Mark chapter 2. Another element of David's wisdom. Notice where he goes. All right? He goes 
to the place of God's worship. He goes to the tabernacle. The tabernacle had been moved to this place called Nob because of the destruction of the Shiloh sanctuary earlier in 1 Samuel. But David is showing something that we should all take note of and that we can all do. In times of distress, holy people go to the holy place. This is emblematic of David going to the Lord. He was certain if there was anywhere that could meet his need, it would be in the house of the Lord. My, my, how do we need to hear that? And how broad the application. Our flesh leads us to draw away from the Lord and his worship when times of distress and confusion come. But David shows us in tremendous physical distress, because his life is on the line, he's on the run, that the place to go for provision is the house of God. Now, the Lord's provision in this first scene. Just as the Lord, listen to this, just as the Lord had provided bread for his people in the wilderness following the Exodus, so he does here with his servant David, who has entered into a type of wilderness. Just as the people of the Lord were pursued by Pharaoh, so too here David is being pursued by Saul, which is made abundantly clear in the next chapter. It doesn't seem a stretch to say that David anticipated this provision, knowing that the Lord provides for his own, no matter the circumstances. Even when it seems impossible to have a meal, God provides. Even when his people are on the run in the wilderness, they are to continue to live in righteousness, knowing, Psalm 23, he prepares a table, he prepares bread for them in the presence of their enemies. Because notice who's there. If you've read 1 Samuel, you know Doeg is not a good guy. Doeg is right there. So David literally has a table prepared before him, in the presence of his enemies. I hinted at the bread parallel, Exodus and this, the wicked king or leader parallel, but there's also a parallel with the Edomite. Because if you read Numbers 20, one of the chief people who oppose God's covenant flock in the wilderness is the Edomites in Numbers 20. So David's wisdom... God's provision, first scene. Now, the second scene, where David receives the sword of Goliath. I can appeal to the the young fellows on this especially. Isn't this awesome? David has killed Goliath a few chapters before, 1 Samuel 17, right? But Goliath's sword, this enormous man's sword, has been kept in God's house. And David is going to be given this sword to assist him in his own wilderness journeys. But how is David's wisdom shown in this scene? Already hinted at it. He knew to go to the house of God because God provides for his people. But it's it's that simple. His wisdom is shown in that he asked. He knew he served the great provider, the one who told his people not to turn to the right or to the left, knowing that he would be with them. Did you notice in our uh, reading of the law, our evangelical obedience text, in the beginning, whatsoever things 
you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. David is acting on this basic Christian, this basic believing instinct. He needed it and he asked for it. He didn't know there was a sword there. He had no idea. So why not ask? Why not ask in prayer? Let me appeal to you, dear saints of God. Why not ask in prayer? Who honestly anticipates finding a weapon that had been pillaged from the Lord's great enemies in his own house? Going to the church of the Lord Jesus and finding a weapon. Those who anticipate these kinds of things are those who have great faith and apply it in wisdom by asking the Lord. Because it is not simply Ahimelech who provides this. It is the Lord who knew before David was born and had ordained that David would not only slay Goliath, but would go on to need that magnificent weapon to defend himself from more enemies. Another broader scripture principle we can draw from this is Proverbs 13, 22b, the second half of the verse. The wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. The wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. Goliath is one of the, the paradigms of the image of sinner in the Old Testament. He defied not just the people of God, but as David said, he defied God. And in those days, what would have been a greater possession than a tremendous sword? The wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. That sword was crafted not for Goliath, but for David. You see, David is acting in wisdom, and God is being faithful in his provision, and we have the privilege of witnessing it so as to encourage us to live similarly as those who are led on the way by an even greater David with greater wisdom who shares his spirit with us. Those who have the spirit of Christ, or to use Paul's words from Colossians 3, if you have been risen with Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God, those who are that type of people, they are those who turn from their sin in repentant faith, and they rely on the wisdom and the provision of God. They will know how to live even amidst the greatest chaos. Maybe you've noticed this about godly folks in your life. I don't mean to say that they are stoic and unemotional, but they remain calm and focused even in the greatest trials. Again, I don't mean they're stoic and they lack emotion, but when it comes time to make a decision, they can make it because they have that wisdom of God applied. They are under the sway of the Lord's wisdom and they know that he will provide. And it may seem a bit allegorical, but the imagery is all there for us to say this. David is in distress and he goes to the house of God for nourishment and strength. And he leaves with both. Now, why do I say that's allegorical? Because that's us. Right? We may not be going to actual war against the flesh in the world right now. But we in our distress... We go to the house of God for nourishment and strength. He gives us bread from heaven and the sword of the Spirit every time we come. And this final scene, it includes both wisdom from David, yes, and provision from God, though they might be a bit less obvious. It's a bizarre scene, to say the least. 
David's wisdom doesn't really jump off the page at first, does it? Right? I asked you earlier, where, who is from Gath? Goliath, right? Why would he go where Goliath is from? Well, the most straightforward answer is because though he had defeated Goliath and implication defeated Gath, they were still enemies of Saul, right? Because Saul was still the king and David was not yet. And it seems possible that David assumed that the enemy of his enemy was his friend. Ever heard that figure of speech? But he was wrong, right? It was not proven true. So what does David do? Maybe he didn't act with wisdom at first, but he found wisdom in the moment. He used righteous deception once again. Much like Jesus. Yes, Jesus used righteous deception. He says as much when he talks about the parables. He says, I'm hiding the truth from some of them. David becomes, as it were, a riddle to Achish, this king of Gath. And his wisdom might be questionable, but God's provision is not. In his immeasurable power, he is able even to use this absurd action of his faithful servant to keep him safe. Another verse from Proverbs, Proverbs 29, 25, The fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. God proves himself trustworthy again and again, even when his servants have to resort to extreme measures. Now, you might think that, you know, the clearest of the, these passages would be the first scene or the second scene. But did you know that there is an entire psalm based upon this third scene? Psalm 34, in the title... It literally says, which is part of the original Hebrew text, the title of Psalm 34 says, A Psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Achish, who drove him away and he departed. Because of the great provision of the Lord through David's insane behavior, we have Psalm 34. From this psalm, we get verses like this. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. What an interpretation of David's actions. Again, it's given by the Spirit. It's as if he's justifying this act of David and acting insane. Almost saying that it was an act of faith. Wisdom. David says also in that psalm, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. That's Psalm 34 talking about David when he acted insane in front of Achish. So you see David's wisdom. And if you doubt God's provision for him in this last scene, I'd encourage you to go read Psalm 34. No matter which way you turn this diamond of a passage, no matter which angle you take the picture from, you're able to see either David's wisdom or God's provision, or both. And maybe it does take an intuitive reading, but by the work of Christ and by his Spirit, we're able to, to discern these truths that are put forth from his word that he has provided for us. 
So let me close with a little bit of application here. I think a good question um, to ask is how are you and I to live with wisdom? Right? Because that's obviously what I'm commending you to do, is to, to live with wisdom, trusting God's provision. First thing, you have to be willing to put yourself in situations where the Lord will be the only one who can bring forth wisdom to act. Let me say that again. You have to be willing to put yourself in situations where the Lord will be the only one who can bring forth wisdom to act. You see, the active Christian, the active believer in the Lord like David, which we can all be in Christ, who is, as Paul says, our wisdom, and in whom is all the wisdom of God hidden for us. The active Christian lives with this ever-present reality that all wisdom is had for them in Christ and they share in it. So what do they do? They take chances. They are bold for Christ's sake by His Spirit's empowering. And it may be overly simplistic, but you have to put yourself in situations where wisdom is required in order to utilize this wisdom that God shows in His Word and throughout history. Second, you live with wisdom or receive this wisdom through the means of grace. By the Word of God, you are taught His truth. By the sacraments of the Lord Jesus, you are nourished in wisdom. And by prayer, you petition Him for wisdom. You remember part of Paul's glorious prayer in Ephesians 1 where he says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom. Paul prayed this for the church. You should as well, but you should also pray it for yourself and those in your household. Third, very practical, spend time with saints whom you see living according to this wisdom. Ask them questions. Try what they say. One of the most neglected chapters in all of Scripture is Titus chapter 2. In that chapter, it speaks of older men and older women being required to instruct younger men and younger women. What are they instructing them? Wisdom? How to live rightly in their stations? Younger men and women, you are to look to the older saints. They're not perfect, just like you, but they have wisdom that God has given them for your benefit, and you're called to draw it out. Fourth, this is the last one, and it may be a little abstract, but I'm confident you can get it. One writer says this about the passage. One can use the weapons of the wicked to fight the Lord's battles. This is what David did. Just as he used Goliath's sword to decapitate Goliath, so he continued to use Philistine weapons against the Philistines. That principle in that first sentence. You can use the weapons of the wicked to fight the Lord's battles. I'm going to give you a justification for that. Just because sinners use and do something does not make that something wrong. If it works and it isn't sinful... You're free to use it. You see this in the realm of things like politics, especially. The right is afraid 
to do what the left does, simply because the left does it. What if, perish the thought, they understand something that you don't? You can use the weapons of the wicked to fight the Lord's battles because not all weapons are inherently wicked. It's sad to say, but a truth nonetheless. Sometimes those who hate God make better weapons than those who love God. And the Holy Ghost tells you through the Apostle Paul, let no man glory in men, for all things are yours in Christ. Therefore, I charge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to live with wisdom. Study how knowledge is applied. Put yourself in situations where only the Lord's wisdom will get you through. He promises to glorify himself. And as Psalm 55, 22 says, when you cast your burden on him, he shall sustain you. Amen. Let us pray.